The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Leadership Development News, Profiles and Practices of Top Performers. Leaders are the heartbeat of any organization. Let Kathy Greenberg and Relly Nadler share with you the pathway to becoming a top leader in your organization. Now, here are your hosts, Dr. Greenberg and Dr. Nadler. Welcome to Leadership Development News, Profiles and Practices of Top Performers. I'm Dr. Relly Nadler. Dr. Kathy Greenberg is with us, my esteemed host. Kathy and I have been doing this for nine years now, and we just got uh, rated the number two uh, show, business show on Voice America with about a million downloads in the last four years. And so we always try to have top people <clears throat> who can bring you key tips. And today, if you ever wondered what the rules are for being human, the author of Life is a Game, Rules for Being Human, Dr. Cherie Carter-Scott. She's a uh, master certified coach. She's an OD consultant to Fortune 500 companies, a lecturer, talk show host, um, she has a coaching school where she trains coaches. She's been seen on the Today Show, CNN, Oprah Winfrey, and dozens of TV and radio and print uh, interviews. And aside from being a media personality, she's worked on five continents. So she can really tell us about what it is working with executives and coaches in over 30 different countries. She's also a wife, mother, scuba diver, and a pilot. Dr. Kathy Greenberg, we all know, uh, my esteemed co-host for the last nine years. She's been the founder of four consultancies, three leadership institutes. She has been <clears throat> called the first lady of happiness. She has a free app called Your Happiness Now. And her latest book, Fearless Leaders, Sharpen Your Focus, is available on Amazon. It highlights her work with special forces, sports athletes, global executives. And you can get more information at fearlessleadersquiz.com. Kathy, welcome. Thanks, Relly. It's going to be an exciting show for sure, and we have much to learn from our guest today, Sheree Carter-Scott. But before we get started, let me welcome my co-host for nine years and somebody who I rank number one in my life as a coach, and that's Dr. Relly Nadler. And Dr. Nadler's newest top-ranked book, Leading with Emotional Intelligence, provides hundreds of tools and strategies to develop star performers across industries. And his Leadership Keys Field Guide is only one of many free bonuses you can get that are available on Amazon and you can also get his free ebook um, or excuse me his free iApp along with his book uh, Leadership Keys with videos that you can find at your app store and don't forget that Relly is a blogger at Psychology Today he has over 100,000 reads and you can get so many exciting resources from Relly if you go to EI Central, that's EI Central, and just text EI Central to 38470, that's EI Central to 38470, or visit him at truenorthleadership.com, and you'll find many tips, tools, and wonderful resources from his book, Leading with Emotional Intelligence, and don't forget, get his field guide, Leadership Keys. So, Relly, let's talk about our guest today, um, if we have missed anything that we'd like our audience to know. And if not, let's get going. Yeah, we'll get going. So, um, Sharif Carter-Scott, I've known for for many years. We've shared some clients over the years. Uh, A wonderful woman, uh, aside from... Um, her book, Life is a Game, These are the Rules. She also has, If Love is a Game, These are the Rules. If Success is a Game, These are the Rules. If High School is a Game, Here's How to Break the Rules, The Gift of Motherhood, 10 Truths of Every Mother Should Know. And she has the MMS uh, Institute that is an international uh, coach training um, institute. So, Cherie, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah, thanks so much. You know, one of the questions we always ask is, uh, you've got, you know, such a, a 
great career over the years. Who's been some of your key uh, influences? Oh, the list could go on and on, but I'll tell you some of the key ones. Um, my mentor, friend, and colleague in OD, Warren Bennis, has been a tremendous influence on my life. He was a, a mentor to me and um, also kind of helped me along at various different junctions and fa- uh, phases of my life when I was kind of considering, you know, is it OD or is it coaching or is it training coaches or is it all the above? What uh-huh. exactly am I doing? And Warren was always there with a, a helping hand and uh, just a really supportive way. So I loved him dearly. And then there was um, Willis Harmon, who was the head of uh, the Institute of Noetic Sciences. And he was another really key person in my life who I just felt enormous affiliation and um, support for. And uh, over the years, there are lots of different people, um, men and women, in various different locations and places. But um, I think I'm I'm just very blessed in my life. And you know, Sheree, it's uh, it's six degrees of separation, or as my friend uh, Monsignor Mannion, who worked with Mother Teresa, likes to say, coincidence is God's way of remaining anonymous. I knew you through Warren. Uh, Warren was one of my mentors for really? over 30 years. Yes, and so I knew of you through him. So it's a blessing that we get to meet, even though it's after his passing. So let me ask you, given that great introduction from the universe to both of us, what are the 10 rules for being human, and how do you define them? Okay, so I'll just go through the 10 rules, which were delivered to me in 1974, kind of in a moment. Um, the first rule about being human is that you'll receive a body. Now, you may like it or hate it, but it is your body, and you have to come to terms with it in whatever phase of evolution that happens to be. Rule number two is you'll be presented with lessons. You may like the lessons or fight with the lessons, but they're your lessons that you're to learn this lifetime. Rule number three is there are no mistakes, only lessons. And uh, some people think of mistakes, but... Once you learn them and you steer away from them, you don't have to become a negaholic. You can actually just learn the lesson and not beat yourself up for not being perfect. Rule number four is a lesson is repeated until learned. And I could repeat that a few times for some people because they say, well, I am a number four. I'm always repeating the same old lessons over and over again, and I don't seem to learn them. Rule number five is learning does not end. There is no point in life when the learning stops. At every phase, there is something to be learned. Rule number six is there is no better than here. And when you get to there, it becomes a new here because the T comes off and it becomes a new here, and then you have a whole new set of theirs. So it's the uh, distraction that there's a better place than where we are. Where we are is where we happen to be, and if we learn the lessons that are associated with where we are, we can then move on and be wherever we want to be. Rule number seven is others are only mirrors of you, which means that if you see something about another person that you judge or that you admire, it actually reflects back on you. Rule number eight, what you make of your life is up to you, is about we all have choices. And with those choices come options and consequences and opportunities and what you make of your life is, you know, at the end of it all, it's, it's what you made of it. And rule number nine is your answers lie inside of you, which means that inside of each one of us, there's a core of inner knowing. And that inner knowing is what allows us to be able to find the spiritual DNA to our life and to be able to know what's important, what's true, what's valuable, and which way we should turn, left or right, at each juncture. And rule number 10 is you will forget all of this at birth, which means that we have this opportunity when we enter the life cycle to be able to find out why we're here, what the purpose of our life is, what our lessons are that we're here to learn, and to get on with it and do it. That is miraculous. Uh, I've heard many of these from the Kaiser Institute uh, where I went for seven years learning intuition, but I've never heard them so beautifully articulated and so eloquently stated. Thank you, Sheree. That's amazing. Thank you, Kathy. And, and so, Sheree, say a little bit how, how these came to you, because I know that you said this is 
this has really been your your life work, and, and it's touched uh, millions. But how how did these come to you? Well, I was sitting with a colleague, and we were working on the design for our coach training, and uh, she said, "Well, you know, let's see what what really is it about?" And I said. Oh, it's about being human. She said, well, what do you mean about being human? I said, well, it's about the rules for being human. We have to, we have to abide by the rules. She said, well, well, what are they? And I said, well, we've got to start with a body because everybody I know has one. And then from there, she said, well, what else? And I said, we're all here to learn lessons. And nobody gets away scot-free without learning any lessons. That's why we're here. And she said, and then... And I said, uh, you know, there are no mistakes. There are just lessons to be learned. And they just started cascading themselves right. onto the paper as she was asking me, and I was saying them. And we put them into our first coach training in San Francisco in 1974. And people liked them and shared them with other people, and they shared them with other people, and on, as the story goes, until the first Chicken Soup book came out in 1994, 20 years later, and on page 81, there were the rules for being human by Anonymous. So that was um, an interesting phase of life, but, you know, when I got called uh, about it by a friend of mine, and he said, don't you think you should get credit? I had the typically female response, and I said, you know, I didn't write them to get credit. I wrote them because I thought they'd be valuable, and I thought they would help people. He said, well, I'm calling Jack right now, and I'm telling him that you wrote these. And then in the next printing, I got credit. But it's kind of a little bit of my own karma of being uh, a bit anonymous and eclipsed on the sidelines. So, Well, let, let's talk about then what are the lessons you're learning now? Because obviously, like many women, we do not ask for recognition. But isn't it wonderful when the universe rewards us for being who we are? And it's usually a man who does it. I mean, that's just the truth for me. You know, it's usually a man who says to me, oh, come on, you know, stand up for yourself and get credit. It's okay. And that's what was. It was Dan Millman at the time who, who said, come on. Um, <laughs> the lessons I'm learning now have a lot to do with um, leaving my legacy because I've been doing this work for 42 years passionately, starting in San Francisco and then spreading across the United States and to Europe, now to Asia, and it's, um, it's something that just doesn't go away. It's really the purpose of my life. And people say to me, well, when are you going to retire? And I say, well, how do you retire from the purpose of your life? You know, mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's why we're here. And I love it so passionately. Why would I stop doing what I love? I guess when I'm not capable of doing it anymore or, you know, I have some mental failure or something. But it's, um, it's still what drives me. I mean, this morning I just completed a program with a, a national health care company, and we were on a webinar this morning from 3.30 in the morning until 7.30 with our final webinar. And, you know, I mean, to get out of bed at 3 o'clock in the morning, you have to love it. Right, right. So I, I do love it passionately. Well, I love, well, I I love that, that answer. Title, I just think that should be the title of your next book. You don't retire from the purpose of your life. Yeah. Oh, great, Kathy. I love that. <laughs> Fabulous. That's perfect. Yeah, so I, I love that, too, because it does seem like, you know, the baby boomers, there's a lot more questions, conversations about retirement, and, and uh, what, a, what a great answer. So, you know, uh, this term, negaholic, I just, uh, I remember hearing this from you 25 years ago. Uh-huh. And I, you know, I think that was probably one of your key platforms. So maybe talk a little bit about, you know, what is a negaholic and how does that kind of tie into, if it does, into some of the rules for life? Well, uh, originally, I, I noticed that when I was coaching people, it wasn't so difficult for them to be able to formulate the vision or the strategy. It was when we came down to them believing in themselves and believing that they could have what they wanted, that they really had the capability, the competency, the deservingness to be able to have what they wanted. And so I started noticing a pattern, and I started probing after that pattern and looking after it a little more. And then in my OD work, I'm working in corporations, I started noticing that there were kind of certain types of people that would collect into different uh, behaviors. Uh, almost categories, and I thought, this is really interesting. So I started looking at it through this filter, and what I started finding is that a negaholic is a person who is 
focused more on the negative thoughts, feelings, or possible outcomes of a situation. And at times I've even called it an addiction because of what I call the triple imprint. And the triple imprint is physiological, psychological, and emotional. And when those three imprints click in at the same moment, you you have a, a very solid imprint inside the person, which is why when you say, well, why can't a perfectly intelligent, capable person just stop it? Just stop being negative. I mean, just knock it off. Well, the reason that they can is because the imprint goes so deeply, and it isn't something that you just wave the wand and say, you know, stop it, and it's done. So what I started realizing is that when people are young, for instance, and I'll just give a little simple example. If they bring home their report card and they've got all A's and one B, and the parents focus on, well, why did you get a B? Why did you get a B? Why didn't you get all A's? That's that's a a recurring pattern in their brain that they start hearing when they get older. You know, why didn't you this? Why didn't you that? If you did this, it, w- it could have been better. It always could have been better. Why didn't you do better? So um, when people were, um, uh, let's just use a perfectionist. Some of us think that we're supposed to be perfect. And perfect mothers, perfect business people, perfect spouses, we're just supposed to be perfect. Where we got that, I'm not exactly sure. But if we have that in our heads, then anything less than perfect is going to be a reason to take ourselves to task. Mm -hmm. And taking ourselves to task means um, it could be benign or it could be really malicious uh, anger at ourselves for, why did you do that? Why did you say that? I can't believe you you left the papers at home that you were supposed to take to this meeting. You know, you didn't bring an umbrella and here it is pouring rain. You took the wrong turn off the freeway. You know, this berating of oneself. And what I noticed is that why do people beat themselves up? What is that about? Well, when you beat yourself up, you hear it, you feel it, you experience it emotionally. You get an enormous amount of attention from it. And you also release into your bloodstream opioid peptides, which are like endorphins, but the flip side of them. And so they attack your immune system, along with giving you a huge amount of attention and reinforcing that emotional charge. So when you have those three imprints simultaneously, that locks in a behavior. It's very powerful as you're speaking. It's funny with uh, with our special forces, special ops guys. They love to say things like, oh, stop drinking the Haterade, and aren't you a sweet little lollipop dipped in psycho? Because it's their way of countering that, you know, that negativism to get, getting people to laugh, you know, yes. getting people yes. out of that opioid peptide state. So it's, uh, it's fascinating as you're talking about the triple imprint how a little bit of humor can sometimes bounce people out of that if you can get their attention long enough. Yes, exactly. And I think, Cherie, that, you know, that whole idea of of the negaholics, a lot of times I I work with folks about being on their case, which is the same thing, on your side or on your case. Mm -hmm. And I I know some of the research goes way back to, like you said, early childhood, that it's something like a 13 to 1 ratio of the negative things we hear. A lot of times that it's just caution. Don't do this. Don't do that. Be careful about that. And 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 uh, you see it ingrained. So when you have somebody who is a, a negaholic employee or a boss, and like you said, it is ingrained. You know, how does someone deal with that? They can't necessarily change the other person or their imprinting. But are there some things that you found that have been helpful or successful with that? Sure. Um... When you're dealing with an employee, whether it's a direct report of yours or it's someone who uh, reports to your department or your division, anyway, somebody who is subordinate to you, if you're if that you're dealing with an employee, you really want to extend support and compassion rather than judgment, which only exacerbates the situation. What happens with a lot of people is that as soon as they encounter somebody who is negative. Either they're negative about themselves or they're negative about the team or they're negative about the new change management process that we're implementing. When they encounter that, they put up resistance and force. And then that only uh, challenges the person and the negativity grows as opposed to dissipating. So what I suggest is that you understand that this person is looking through a filter of negativity that they didn't choose 
that they didn't necessarily want, and it's just an automatic knee-jerk response. So the more you can extend support and compassion to them and encourage them to be able to consider the possibility of it being different, opening up the door of possibility, if you will. And then if it's a boss... Um, you have to really determine what kind of a, a strain of the negaholic virus it is that you're dealing with. But if the boss is really perfectionistic, you might want to have a conversation to adjust the bar so that you aren't always falling short of the mark because a perfectionistic boss is going to be so demanding that you're going to start, it's going to start affecting your self-esteem over time. Right. right. Uh, and so when so- that... <clears throat> that happens having that conversation with the boss to really be able to maybe uh, clarify the the expectations. Yes. To get someone in alignment. Definitely. Well, some one of the things that comes to mind, Sharia, as I'm hearing you talk about this, is uh, often if somebody is a boss versus an employee, we're a little hesitant to call them on their behavior. It's much <laughs> easier to talk to somebody who's a peer or an employee. Um, I think it's probably a little. Stickier, you know, if you can imagine. Oh, sure, and politically incorrect, also. Yeah, yeah, it's a little higher ranking. So I'm I'm sure, pardon me, that there are uh, just maybe one or two tips you can give us for how somebody can approach a boss uh, versus somebody who's a peer. Well, the thing that you have to understand, if it's your boss who's a negaholic, and there are a lot of negaholic bosses out there, I have to say, it's sad, but it's true. And some of them have gotten there because they are perfectionistic or because they are so demanding. But you have to really determine for yourself, um, are you going to go to battle with this person because they're coming down on you? Or is it a situation involving um, the department or another department? So exactly if you can get in there, if you're related to this person and, and have a, a functional relationship, you could say to your boss, you know, are you open to another point of view? You know, would you consider another possibility? In other words, you kind of knock on their psychological door to be able to see if there's even an opening for another option. And that's when you could maybe insert the, something to consider. And that's how I usually say it. You know, this is just something to consider. Maybe it won't fit with the plan or your vision, but it's just something I would like to toss out there. That's a, a way of not necessarily making the person lose face or by taking a big risk yourself politically in the organization. Oh, that's, the other a good, thing, that's a good way the, to do it. The other thing I could recommend, um, Kathy, is that when you're, um, when you're working on a project with the boss and there's an unrealistic deadline and it seems like everyone around you is working themselves to the bone and they have no personal life and everyone's getting sick, What I would suggest is, and it's a risky thing to do, but like the emperor's new clothes story that all of us knew as children, maybe at one point saying, could I I just risk something without my head being cut off that maybe, just possibly, we're driving a little hard for this result? Um, If we look around at the people here, they, um, they look like they're not so healthy right now, and maybe there's a bigger purpose involved here than us all just getting sick. And, oh, that's a, you know, that's I did a that just way last week it. with a corporation I was working with. And, you know, people, dead silence, absolute dead silence. I said, I know I'm not supposed to say this. Nobody is. But if I hear you all, you're stressed, you're burned out, you're getting sick, you have no time with your families, and you're absolutely sacrificing yourself for the company. Is that what you and want to be doing? Yep, that moral courage is very important for us. So we're going to take a quick break. So hold that thought. Don't go away. You're listening to Leadership Development News.
always talking business, talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Most leaders underestimate their influence and power over others and thus underperform. Dr. Relly Nadler and Leaders Playbook help leaders point the way by providing the strategic place to get to the top in a simple paint-by-the-numbers process. Seasoned and emerging leaders will have answers to these questions. What are the steps to move up and become a star in your organization? How do you develop your people to be the next level leaders in the organization? What are your triggers that are holding you back and how do you manage them? How do you maximize your power and and influence so you and your team perform better. What do you do to ensure your communication is received accurately? How do you delegate effectively? How do you develop strong relationships across the organization? Emotional intelligence training, coaching, books, and tools by Dr. Nadler are available at his website, www.truenorthleadership.com or 805-683-1066. Let Kathy Greenberg teach you and your team how to harness the power of happiness to generate even greater success and satisfaction at work. Did you know by applying coaching and the new science of happiness, you can improve your return on people anywhere from 50% to 350%. At H2C, we believe in both a return on people, that's ROP, as much as return on investment, or ROI. Kathy Greenberg, New York Times bestselling author of What Happy Working Mothers Know and internationally acclaimed What Happy Companies Know, is the leading global expert on coaching combined with the new science of happiness and originator of the Happiness Equals Profits business formula. Kathy's company, H2C, Happy Companies, Healthy People, provides practical knowledge for individuals and entire companies to maximize their potential in as little as one day. Kathy is available for one-to-one executive coaching, group programs, and as an electrifying conference speaker. Catch Kathy Greenberg at leading conferences and as a spokesperson for Cancer Treatment Centers of America. For free tips and downloads, visit Kathy's award-winning book site, WhatHappyWorkingMothersKnow.com, or for distinctive learning, practical solutions, and proven results for your business, visit Kathy Greenberg at H2CLeadership.com. That's H2CLeadership.com. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Leadership Development News, Profiles and Practices of Top Performers with your hosts, Dr. Kathy Greenberg and Relly Nadler. We know you have leadership questions for these noted experts, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5790. That number again is 1-866-472-5790. Now, let's get back to the show. Welcome back to Leadership Development News, Profiles and Practice Top Performers, and we're talking with Dr. Cherie Carter-Scott, Rules for Being Human. And in the intro, uh, Cherie, we talked about the you are, have worked on five continents and 30 countries. So coaching is such a, a huge field. What are, what are some of the cultural differences and maybe you know, say a little bit about things you're learning about some of the different countries that you're in? Yeah, well, you know, I was um, invited to be able to write a chapter for a book on coaching cross-culturally. Uh-huh. And the chapter that I've been asked to write is about coaching in Thailand. And uh, it's a really interesting topic, and I knew a little bit about it after having coached and lived in Thailand for five years. But actually going into the research on the subject, I learned so much more because I wanted the chapter to be as thorough as it could possibly be. I'll give you one little example. There's a thing called Jai, and this is a Thai expression, and it means we help each other out. We take care of each other. We don't make each other uncomfortable, and we don't confront each other. So what I noticed in training coaches in Thailand is that at times they would not ask the powerful questions. Mm-hmm. And they wouldn't ask the powerful questions because of Greg Jai. And so it became part of our training to address Greg Jai, which is um, 
you know, just one of those things that you learn uh, going along. Now, are you doing Grang Jai in this session? Well, stop it. You know, put Grang Jai aside and connect with the person and ask the powerful question that you want to ask that's right on the tip of your tongue, but you don't dare ask. So that's just one of the examples of some of the challenges that you come up against. Another thing that's in alignment with coaching is called Nam Jai. And Nam Jai is water from the heart, which is kindness. And kindness is a basic, um, kind of the fundamental stage before you get to empathy. And empathy is called Henjai, which means looking into the heart. So these are just different phrases and they're, um, the way the Thai people represent a lot of their expressions is with the use of the word jai, which means heart. Hmm. So in, um, when we teach in coaching, we'll say you're going to use that looking into the heart because that's the empathy. You're going to use the kindness because it is kind being a coach. But you really have to set aside the grang jai because at times you're going to have to say the uncomfortable thing and ask the really important, powerful question. Well, that's great. amazing. Yeah, that's really uh, great. So say a little bit about the, your institute, you know, where you're based and then, and then you know, the, some of the different countries. And, and I know it's an ICF training uh, institute, right? Like, what, yes. what does the program look like? Well, um, you, you may or may not know this really. I don't know if we ever had this conversation, but when I first uh, designed our coaching training, it was in San Francisco in 1974, and I had some volunteers who were kind of like guinea pigs who said, well, you know, I'll, I'll let you experiment on me to see if you can produce the results. And then in 1975, we launched our very first coach training, which was six months long. And that was, as you know, a couple decades before ICF came into existence. Right, right. So we started in San Francisco, and then we spread nationally. And then in 88, we went to Europe. And then in 2010, we spread to Asia. So right now, we're doing trainings in the U.S. and the Netherlands, Thailand, Hungary, Vietnam, Singapore, and in the planning stages, India, Germany, and China. Wow. That's incredible. And it's basically you and, and, and Lynn, your sister, and do you also have uh, a, a yes. other, other instructors or coaches? Oh, yes, we do. We have licensees, we have instructors, we have coaches. And ICF has made it really easy for us because having affiliates or licensees who are PCCs makes it an awful lot easier because they do the vetting for us. Uh-huh. So if we find someone in a country, like, for instance, Udit, who is our uh, PCC in Budapest, she's an experienced coach. She has a lot, of, a lot of years under her belt, and she's an HR professional, knows everybody in Budapest. And what she was looking for was a curriculum. And she found us, and she loved our curriculum, and it was just like a marriage made in heaven, you know. We had the missing piece to her puzzle, and... Um, we supported her in making that happen. That's huge. So tell us a little bit about some of the challenges that you encounter in some of these trainings. You just talked about the language and the use of language in Thailand, um, which I assume would also spread to places uh, where, where we work as well, Singapore and India. Tell me about some of the things that, that you're thinking might be challenges right now in terms of culture, in terms of history. I mean, I'm thinking of countries, uh, for example, in Lithuania, uh, the Latvian countries, just as an example, where words like collaboration uh, and coaching, in many instances, can have a negative connotation. Well, you know this, Kathy, from your experience, but um, two weeks ago I was in India doing five different programs in both northern and southern India. And the thing that has really fascinated me about India, and it's, you know, I've gone there now a bunch of different times, is that three years ago when I was there, we were really exposed to prearranged marriages. And yeah. my husband was so fascinated with this. He said, well, you know, how many are prearranged and how many are love marriages and how many? He was just fascinated. And everybody we'd meet, he'd ask them, are you married? Was it a love marriage or was it prearranged? Or... He just wanted to know, you know, what, what's the deal? 
Well, what we found is that just recently, and in the last 10 years or so, that India is coming around to a, a point of choice of allowing people and encouraging people to make choices as opposed to being, you know, prearranged everything. No, I, I understand exactly what you're talking about, that people are yeah. being given an opportunity to make choices between a love marriage and an arranged marriage. So the challenge then for the coaches or the challenge then for the individuals having to make these choices, what... There's, a, there's something here that you're seeing that's oh, yes. distinguishable. Yes, mm-hmm. because what's happening is that there's a tradition that goes back centuries of the way we do things. And then, because of the rise of the nuclear family in India and the rise of modernism, people are starting to see that their history may come to bear on their present choices, but actually they're preferring the modernism that comes from... Uh, the West, and they like to be able to make their own choices. So when we were meeting with people this last two weeks ago, people were saying over and over again, you don't know how quickly India is changing. You know, how quickly? And we're saying, okay, so tell us, we have more coaches in India today than you have in the United States of America. Oh, my God, I was absolutely shocked. Wow, yeah. Yeah, would you believe that? They said there are more ICF coaches in India today than anywhere else in the world. So there's this explosion happening in India, and you can't actually teach coaching unless somebody understands the concept of choice. You know, it's so fundamental to the process. You have to be able to have the person have some deep experience of what choosing means. Well, looking at what's happening there and how quickly things are changing, it's remarkable. It's as if it's, it's not like a behemoth that's moving slowly over time. It's like a, um, the flash that's just ch- happening overnight. Wow, that's incredible um, just to, to hear that. And is it just because uh, the vast numbers of people in India? Um, and is it, it's almost kind of like a wave. I mean, yeah, well, it's caught on. And... Because, I mean, for instance, some of the companies that I work for over there, um, one company uh, was doing a, a diversity initiative, and so we were talking to them about our plan, and I had coached several of the executives there, and so they chose to do our virtual training and have it available for their employees. And it's a, a virtual training that I did that was a video series, a subscription program of eight videos on diversity and inclusion. And they loved it. They were really excited by it. Now, when I heard, which I was kind of clueless about the numbers, I said, well, how many employees do you have? And when they said 65,000, I thought, now that's a few employees. Yeah. That's quite a few. And when they started saying, well, yes, we make coaching available to our employees. Well, what's the criteria? Well, they have to be on a leadership track or they have to have some challenges in front of them or we want to make certain that they're going to accelerate in their development and be able to be promoted in a very short period of time. So very interesting to be able to see how coaching is being embraced by corporations and how they are making it available to their employees, both the ones who have um, some challenges, but also the ones who are on the fast track. Mm-hmm. And are you seeing more kind of the fast track? I know for Kathy and I, that's typically I would say 75% or so are kind of the fast track, emerging leaders, succession candidates. About 25%, at least in, in my practice, are more the, you know, <clears throat> they got rough edges and, and more, more uh, development. What, what are you seeing in, in the corporations? I think that that would be a very uh, fair estimate. Um, I've come across something really interesting lately, and I don't know if you've encountered this, but it started in India, and it's been, then it's in Thailand, then it's it's just kind of everywhere I look now. It started with a client who said he was supposed to, he's a a scientist, he's a brilliant person, but he's not a people person. Okay, classic coaching example. So... I started talking to him about, well, what is your objective? What, we, what do we want to accomplish in our coaching together? And he said, well, um, 
I've been told I need to become a people person. And I said, okay, what does that mean to you? We started exploring what that meant. And then at one point I said to him, I said, so what are some of the behaviors that you have been told that you need to exhibit to be able to show or demonstrate that you are a people person? And he said, well, start with smiling. Uh, smiling. Hey, tell me about smiling. He said, well, I don't smile. I said, on purpose? He said, no, I, I just don't smile. Uh, well, this is very interesting to me because I, I smile pretty easily and readily, and I just had never come across somebody who right. didn't smile. I mean, never smiles. <laughs> so um, I thought, well, this is really fascinating. What is this here for me to learn? And what I started discovering is that more, the more intense somebody is, the more serious and credible they are, the more they want to appear significant and um, be taken seriously, mm-hmm. the less they'll smile. Right, right. And, so and that's very true. Person, that's very true. We find that in the special operations forces. That's one of the things that we have to work on immediately is affect. Because when you're empathetic, and if you're empathetic, if you're empathetic in the wrong place, you can get yourself killed. Yeah. So it's interesting how smiling implies seriousness. Uh, and I don't want to be, you know, um, I don't want to be uh, uh, invasive or say things that are not PC. But in corporate America, women are expected to smile. And if not, you are considered to be unfriendly. And I believe um, they call it resting bitch face. It's like you, right. <laughs> you, you cannot get away with being just serious. You have to, you have to have mm-hmm. the smiling along with the seriousness. So it's, it's interesting that you're coming across this in a cultural right. way. I also think yeah, from the psychological and, um, side that people project all the, the wrong things on someone who's not like that blank face who's not putting anything out, then everybody projects all the wrong things. Like you said earlier, Sheree, about a mirror, people think, oh, they don't like what I'm saying, or, or they're angry at me, or they think I'm an idiot. And the person may just be looking at them you know, and not doing all the social cues, smiling, nodding heads. You know, it's so simple, but I think that happens so fast. Yeah, it's it's a very interesting thing, and I found it in India. I found it then in Thailand with an Australian who was working in an American company in Thailand, and he said to me, just completely unrelated to the India situation, he said, my employees have been telling me that I don't smile enough. I thought, what is going on here? It's kind of like right, coming right. at me from all sides. Yeah. Do, do I not smile enough? And and he said that he was so unaware of that yeah. because he was just focused on getting the job done and you know a, a little scowl in his brow and uh, head down you know just leaning forward moving at a quick pace but really unaware of how he was coming across to people around him and in Thailand now this is something you might not know there are thirteen different types of smiles. Huh. And it's one of the parts of my chapter of my book, but there are smiles for everything. And some are sincere and some are not sincere, but it's called the land of smiles. Hmm. That's fascinating, yeah. And each one has a different response or or meaning. Yeah. Well, the thing I want to know is what else did this person say needed to be done in order to become a people person? So smiling was one. Oh, uh, there were... Okay, so it it went a little bit deeper in that he is a introvert in an extremely extroverted culture, uh-huh. mm-hmm. and so working there during the daytime, it would take a lot out of him. Uh, but then he'd have to go to networking meetings in the evenings as well. And what we discovered is that he's also a highly sensitive person, right? An HSP. What did you say? What was the last thing you're you said? familiar with? Highly sensitive person. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he's also a highly sensitive person. And when I suggested to him, I said, you know, there's something that you might want to take a look at. And he read the book and he said, thank you so much for letting me feel like I am normal. I never could figure out what was wrong with me. And now I know I just am highly sensitive. I'm highly sensitive to lights and to noise and to sounds and to, you know, energy. And here's a scientist who has declared that he is a highly sensitive person. We have that, and then the introvert also. So, 
and just being able to you know be accepted. So there, there's so much about just I think in your work and what we we do, kind of accepting who you are and your strengths, and that sometimes just naming it, they go, oh, okay, now I'm released. This is this is kind of normal. Yeah, exactly. It's really fascinating to me to be able to see all the different facets of what it means to be a people person. He has to get out there. He has to be more interested in his people. Oh, this is one of my latest ones. He said to me um, in this last session that we had about a week ago or so, he said, um, I'm supposed to um, galvanize my people towards loyalty, my team towards loyalty. He said, I don't have a clue what that, what that means. I mean, they're either loyal or they're not. And I said, well, what... What have you done in the past? And are, what do you do? Well, the bottom line was he said that he's a loyal person and he's never had to be managed by anybody, so he doesn't really manage his team. He right. just expects them to do their work and hope it works out. But he doesn't manage them. He doesn't interact with them. He doesn't reach out to them. He just expects them to do their job, which is exactly what he does. So he's projecting onto his uh-huh. team the exact behaviors that are true for him but not true for them. Yeah. Well, that's, that's so not, beautiful. And not I, surprising. Cherie, a lot of times I'll say to folks, you know, if you only do what you do, uh, you know, and you project on everybody else, you're only going to be 50%, you know, successful. Not everybody's yeah. like you. But I think that that's kind of where that awareness is so critical that, wait, not everybody does things like I do, and how do I appreciate the diversity and the differences? Yeah, it's, it's so interesting to be able to get into those little cult, cross-cultural nuances between people. So, Cherie, how can people get in touch with you? Well, they can go to my website, which the simple one is uh, www.drcherie.com, C-H-E-R-I-E. Yes, say that again. Um, Dr. D-R, Cherie, C-H-E-R-I-E, dot com. Great. That's the easy one, and then they can get to all the other ones across the globe as well through that one as a portal. Well, so one of the things we wanted to talk about uh, is <clears throat> this coaching movie. We've had Patrick on our show uh, oh, um, a while back, and Kathy you may remember he's the one that does the um, you know body language and stuff. But say a little bit about that. I know we talked about this, and then you got you're heavily involved in in what's called the coaching movie. Yeah, it happened about two years ago, I believe. That Ka- uh, Patrick and Kasha came to us and said. You know, we're doing this coaching movie, and um, we've heard from people that you're the mother of coaching and that you're supposed to be a part of this. And I said, well, you know, it wouldn't be a bad idea for me to leave my legacy before I leave this planet. And so we started talking to him about it, and it just felt right. And um, so Michael and my sister Lynn and I all uh, signed on as executive producers, and we were the very first ones to jump on board and say, we're going to do this. And then... They built it up, and there are six executive producers now and a team of 33 coaches, and we've been putting together this film, shooting it over the last year of four different clients who have gone through the, um, the phase of uh, being coached by different coaches and their different strategies. And it's been a really interesting process because they have experts on, they have coaches who are no telecoaches. They have ask and listen coaches, they have ICF coaches, they have non-ICF coaches, they have across the board, and it's really quite interesting to see the different methodologies, approaches, uh, basic assumptions, and similarities and conflicts as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I know you you had Marshall Goldsmith. I saw some of that. You had, yeah. and then it is interesting. You had John Gray from Men from Mars, Women from Venus. It is an right. interesting group. Yep. And he was also uh, consulting with uh, one of our clients who is interested in having a relationship. Hmm. And, um, been, well, you know, the movie's going to come out next September. That's when it's due to be released. But right now we're in the edit stage and editing the different stories and putting them together because they all have different objectives. You know, one guy whose name is Rob, whose life fell apart completely, and he wants to put his life back together. A woman whose name is Precious, and she started a lingerie company for uh, extra large uh-huh. women. And then another guy named Chad who wanted to have a, wants to have a relationship. And um, 
Then the fourth person named Soon, who's from Singapore and Brunei, I believe, and he wanted to make leaps in his professional life, and apparently he's just gotten an, a, a pointyship with the Brunei government. So it's, it's an interesting process of uh, watching the client's movement and their willingness, because everything is exposed on film, and so they sign a waiver that, you know, it's all okay. Yeah. But to watch their movement and their progress and um, their setbacks, because every one of them has wanted to quit sometime along the journey, yeah. and they've hung in there, now, did and they they've all had multiple, significant breakthroughs as well. Did they see multiple coaches? Yes, as a matter of fact, they did, which is not something that I'm totally enthusiastic about because I think it can really confuse the client as to what are we doing here? Am I asking? Am I listening? Am I being told? Am I being advised? What am I doing? But um, I think it makes for an interesting movie because, you know, if if we're just going to make a movie about ICF coaches, you know, we all sit and nod our heads and say, "Uh uh-huh, and we empathically reach out to our clients, but Mm -hmm. it's not very interesting. Yeah, yeah. So just to clarify, Sheree, this is a movie for ICF, for public domain. Uh, how would people find the movie? It is on coachingmovie.com. They can go there and see um, excerpts about it. It will be released as a feature-length documentary in September 2016, and it will be released to film festivals for starters, and then uh, through movie theaters, and then eventually online and downloads. And I think the vision mission of Patrick uh, was to basically just spread coaching and to get, you know, get millions of people to know uh, how helpful and beneficial it can be. Yeah, educate pe- a million people in what coaching is and how powerful it can be. Right. Well, congratulations for all the wonderful work you're doing across the universe for being with us today, Cherie. It's been nice to connect with you even virtually through our friend Warren Bennis and through our movie uh, production companies, and I look forward to future opportunities to learn and hear from you. Me too, Kathy. How exciting. Well, thank you, Cherie, and for, for our listeners, it's drcherie.com as a way to get in touch with Cherie. And Cherie, give, give your, uh, my best to both Michael and Lynn, and thanks for so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me on, really. Well, thanks, everyone, for being with us today for another fantastic feature of Profiles and Practices of Top Performers on Leadership Development News. Thanks for tuning in to tune up your leadership performance. And don't forget to visit us at ExcelInstitute.com. Take good care. You've been listening to Leadership Development News, Profiles and Practices of Top Performers with your hosts, Kathy Greenberg and Relly Nadler. We sincerely hope that you gained some great ideas and inspiration on how to elevate your leadership skills. Join us again next Monday at noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time right here on the Voice America Business Channel. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.